Well, good day to you. In this series, our turning points, we intend three tasks. Firstly, we engage ourselves in a spiritual turning point experienced by a Bible character. We then confirm the moment as a turning point moment by observing it resonate subsequently in their life. And finally, we personalise the principles, exploring the relevance for our own discipleship. Now, this series is already engaged with Jacob at Bethel. And today we deal with another Jacob turning point. And I think this is important. Discipleship is fluid after all. It's not static. The development of character is not limited to a, a single insight or a isolated moment. It's important to remain intellectually willing and emotionally open to the work of the spirit, power of the word, the impact of experience, the still small voice. You and I will not be confined to a single important spiritual moment in our lives, and nor was Jacob. In this turning point, we think particularly about character development. And as you are aware, there's a distinction between a personality and, of course, someone's character. Personality is something we can readily observe. We can describe someone's personality as gregarious and extroverted, or contemplative and introverted. And when we first uh, meet someone, we may find their personality infectious, exciting, intriguing, attractive, or even off-putting or not appealing at all. She's so fun, or he's too loud. But character is not like personality. Someone's motivation or morality or psychology is not often immediately accessible or observable. Characters reveal themselves over time. Importantly, character is best revealed under differing circumstances in life. When on holidays, when at work, when under trial, when in financial turmoil, when mourning, when at church, when away from church. So two observations emerge about character. The first is each of us have a character gap between our current character and what our character could be. And so there's a need to always develop character. And secondly, character is malleable. Our characters can change. And there's recognised strategies for this. Strategies include having a positive role model, whether factual or fictional, or implementing moral reminders, things like signing an agreement, perhaps reading the Ten Commandments, a message on a fridge magnet, or a daily text with a moral message or encouraging idea. So remember, your character reveals itself over time, it has space for development and improvement. It's malleable and there are strategies to assist character development. And as one such strategy is a role model, let's see if Jacob can help us. Now the author of Genesis provides two helpful literary tools that reveal both personality and character of Jacob. So let me jog your memory. The first tool 
is an insight into Jacob's personality using a visual marker. The author demands that we keep our eyes fixed on Jacob's hands. You'll recall it's the very first thing we see of Jacob as a hand that had wrestled in the womb is first seen wrestling from the womb. Those hands make pottage in the birthright incident. Those hands are covered in goat's hair in deception. Those hands take a rock for a pillow. Those hands wrestle a brother by the brook. Jacob's observable personality is one of forthright, hands-on, active self-determination. The second tool is an insight into Jacob's character. And again, it's using another visual code. It is the innocuous and misunderstood piece of narration given at his birth that Jacob lived in a tent, just as everyone in that part of the story did. Tent life is code. It's code for spiritual motivation, for spiritual attitude, for character. The same code is picked up in Hebrews 11 where tent life is code for a character of faith. And so the author has been generous to you and I, providing a lens to understand Jacob's personality, but more importantly, his underlying character. So let's now press on with the turning point event. And it's the wrestle between God and Jacob in Genesis chapter 32. And this chapter is rich with poetic imagery, great drama, exquisite storytelling, and important spiritual highlights. Now the chapter is familiar to many, so let's be efficient with time. And please join in observing what the author is beautifully doing here as they provide a factual narration, and yet at the same time a parable of Jacob's life. The narration is a journey in the day and a wrestle in the night. That's what chapter 32 deals with. And the parable is a wrestle between God and Jacob undertaken in both the day and the night. And so with Genesis 32 either open in front of you or in mind, let's see this play out. At the end of Genesis 31, God pulls Jacob towards him and he encourages Jacob back to Bethel. And so Jacob yields and the movements of God and Jacob are in sync. And then chapter 32 begins with a remarkable encounter. As he journeys back towards Bethel, God journeys with him. Jacob visibly sees a companion group of angels journeying with him. An extraordinary event, this. Imagine for a moment in your own life, you're on a journey down the freeway or on a plane or hiking a mountain path and you become aware that you've been joined by a company of angels. This is an extravagant visual comfort experienced by very few in the Bible. God is present. And so Jacob responds, Mahanaim, two camps, he notes. And God pulls Jacob to him. Does Jacob relinquish? Does he yield to God? Well, no, Jacob sends envoys to Esau. Jacob 
wrestles control from God to self. He adopts hands-on coercion. And he says as much as he instructs his envoys to carefully explain to Esau that he's wealthy and that he's personally seeking favour. Now, when the envoys return with the news of Esau and 400 men on their way, we're given again a raw insight into the wrestle at play. He's frightened. Jacob's response is to, you'll recall, divide himself into two camps. Yet we know there's already two camps. Jacob displays no trust in the other camp and he wrestles the power to himself. He takes matters into his own hands. But like us, in dark times, he falls to his knees and he prays. He prays, I fear him. Please deliver me. He relinquishes power, gives the wrestle back to God, to and fro, God and Jacob, trust and fear, so the day goes. An earnest prayer born of fear. And so how does Jacob rise from that prayer? Does he rise submitting to the power and care of God? No, he trusts in his own hands. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 bulls, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. And in verse 20, the author clarifies that this isn't a moment in harmony with God. It is a moment of self-will. The author says, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. No mention of the God who he'd just been praying to. And so the push and the pull continues. And the final act of self-will, of not submitting, of self-determination was to concoct another plan of separation. The family on one side and he on the other side of the brook Jabbok. So I hope you can see it. The author is showing us Jacob's personality, his modus operandi, is to wrestle control from the father, to trust in elaborate plans, gifts of persuasion, minimization of risk and loss, tactics of engagement, and a single but genuine prayer. A day of wrestling with God precedes a night of wrestling with God. And so in verses 24 through to 30 of this chapter, the metaphorical wrestle becomes a literal wrestle. And you're familiar with the event, so there's only three things to note of the wrestle. The first is they wrestled all night. Now some commentators ask, how is it possible that an immortal angel and a mortal man can be equally matched. And they propose solutions such as the angel having temporarily diminished powers as a man. But this misses the point. The point is they wrestled all night long. Jacob had wrestled at birth, over the birthright, for the blessing, at Laban's, all the previous day, and now all night long. Jacob had been wrestling with God for years. And the second point, of course, is no one was winning. Neither God nor Jacob 
were prevailing. Jacob was engaged in a spiritual wrestle in which power shifted, the dominance swung, but Jacob never fully relinquishes to God. And the third observation is how gritty and raw God reveals himself in this. Here is God engaged with Jacob in personal, intimate, hand-to-hand combat, pushing and pulling, rolling in the dirt, tactile, involved, all night long. It is a remarkable insight into the Father. And so we arrive at the turning point. And all it takes is a touch. Jacob is painfully brought to see where the power lays, where the victory rests, where trust can be invested. It takes just a touch. God is truly in complete control. And so don't read over that too quickly. It is the turning point. Years of wrestling with a hip out of joint, in pain, he perceives finally what he and his hands need to do. They hold on. This is the pivoting moment where Jacob stops wrestling with God and learns to hold on to God. No pulling, no pushing, no striking, no grappling, no twisting. He holds on to the angel, not willing to let go. He genuinely does hear something that he has never consistently done before. So much so that it's the angel that says, let me go. Now the thesis in this series is that we can only be certain that this is a turning point for Jacob by seeing it evidenced in subsequent commentary or behaviour. So let's make that inquiry. Does this moment really result in a shift, a thorough change? Does it result in character development? Now Hosea, in his message to Israel, does what we are always trying to do. He takes a biblical character, he uses their experiences to provide instruction about discipleship. And Hosea uses both negative and positive aspects of Jacob's life to convey instruction and advice. In particular, we want to look at Hosea chapter 12, verses 3 to 6. Now in this uh, collection of verses, Hosea uses the examples of Jacob's birth and his life. He then uses the example of the wrestle at Jabbok, and then he uses the example of Jacob at Bethel. And each event that Hosea uh, recounts is then matched by incident-specific advice. It's a form of chiasm. Instead of a life marked by wrestling, in verse 3, he says, wait continually for God, in verse 6. When he deals with Jabbok, in verse 4, instead of wrestling with God, his advice is to hold fast to love and justice. Instead of wrestle, hold fast. It's incident-specific advice. And then he says, like God promised to Jacob at Bethel, that he would return him, he would shub him back to the land. You too, his advice is, you too, Israel, should 
return or shub back to God. And so Hosea pinpoints the element of the wrestle at Jabbok that is important, the turning point. His incident-specific Jabbok advice to a nation astray is to, not to wrestle, it's to hold fast. It's the important moment. It's the key message from Jacob's Jabbok experience. It's the message the Israelite needs to hear uh, to heed. Those hands that wrestle with God must become hands that hold fast to God. So let's just pause and clarify something for a moment. We need to be clear about this idea of wrestling, which can be used as a noun and a verb, and today as a metaphor. So let's clarify. It's true that our entire lives will be a wrestle in the sense of a noun. We will face trials, both natural and spiritual. We may fall upon hard times, or we may have spiritual doubts, or perhaps one will trigger the other. These wrestles or trials will just simply exist and they will influence your character. But this is not the type of wrestle that is occurring in Genesis 32. The wrestle that the author of Genesis is asking us to see is not one of life's trials and tribulations. This is different. This is a man directly fighting God. And that is not okay. And the word, of course, is generally very clear about this. Romans 7, 7, for example. For the committed disciple, our wrestle is not with God, it's with ourselves. And in the case of Jacob, it, of course, the wrestle is not the triumph. It's not what is celebrated in this story. Be careful not to glorify the wrestle. The triumph in this story is that Jacob gets to the point where he stops wrestling against God and starts to hold fast to God. So yes, our life will be marked by a wrestle with trials and tribulations, but to wrestle against the will of God is not celebrated. Holding fast to God is the goal. And so the questions that naturally arise for Jacob are, well, is this what we see next? Does wrestling with God diminish and does holding fast emerge? And do we get to see Jacob, as is advised by Hosea, a man who not only holds fast, but does he get to a place where he waits continually for God? Well, it's an unequivocal, yes, he does. In fact, the author seems to be at pains to show this. Genesis chapter 34 just very shortly after the wrestle at Jabbok, Dinah is tragically defiled. His daughter is harmed. Now we have three teenage daughters and this is an appalling atrocity to think about for Jacob, for any parent. What will Jacob do? What will his hands see fit to do? I mean, usually they do something. He does nothing. 
adding greater burden to Jacob, it is his sons who act. Religious trickery, a murderous rampage. What will Jacob do? The author says, Jacob held his peace. Genesis chapter 35. Jacob's son Reuben stages an insolent power play and lays with Bilhah. I've always scratched my head at Jacob's response here. The author simply says, and Israel heard of it. He doesn't respond. A deliberate piece of writing by the author demanding that you, you must see a different man now. This is no longer Jacob, it is Israel who waits continually for God. And Genesis 46 is the most remarkable proof for me. As an old man, he is told that, well, Joseph's death was really a cruel and callous deception. So let's just think about what is happening here for Jacob. Any parent understands that nothing would get between you and reuniting with your child. Any parent who has lost a child will understand this fiercely. Nothing would stop you or distract you from that short journey from southern Israel to Egypt to just see, to touch, to smell, to kiss, to, to hug your beautiful child. And yet we read that Jacob does this. Genesis 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I'll make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I'll also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Can you see what the author's telling you? Can you see who Jacob has become? At the edge of the land, just over the horizon, a short journey away is Egypt. But just work through what Jacob does here. He stops, he takes an animal and he kills it, he prepares it, and then offers sacrifices. He sets up camp and he sleeps. But it's a troubled sleep because Jacob has something on his mind. He needed an answer. He wasn't sure if he should leave Israel, even though Joseph awaits. And so it's God who intervenes, who holds Jacob and assures him that he doesn't need to be afraid about going, that it's okay to go to Egypt. Now, if that was your child, would you? I mean, I wouldn't give God the chance to intervene. And this is my favourite account of Jacob. It is a complete triumph of character development. Every single one of us would forgive him for being self-determined, strong-willed, hands-on, a father who just charges to see a child he once thought dead, but now alive. This is the precise moment that we would accept Jacob just pushing to achieve whatever he wanted to achieve. We would applaud his urgent journey to Joseph. 
and it's in this context we see the remarkable man he has become. He does the opposite. Finally, he holds fast and waits on God. And so for the first time, we can comfortably see Jacob as Jesus. As he pauses in Beersheba and in action and perhaps even in prayer to the Father, he says, not my will, but yours be done. Now, it's interesting that Jacob's difficulties in life become worse after Jabbok. A daughter raped, sons become murderers, one son lays with his concubine, Rachel dies, Joseph dies. It's a series of tragedies that would break any one of us. But the author shows us something remarkable, a radically different man from Jabbok onwards who holds and waits onto God. And so a final proof that Jacob is a changed man after the wrestle at Jabbok is found in Hebrews chapter 11. And our understanding of Jacob helps us to interpret the power of the words in Hebrews 11 verse 21. By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Now, on the face of it, the statement is anticlimactic. There is nothing remarkable about an elderly man at the point of death, A, leaning on a staff, and B, blessing his grandchildren. That's the rule, not the exception. And if that is all there is to faith, then most grandfathers throughout history would qualify. But you can see what the author is doing. It's a remarkable word picture with evocative memory triggers. Hands, not wrestling. Hands, now holding. And I like to thank an, an, an anonymous reviewer of this article who helpfully uh, advised that the word hold here in Hebrews chapter 11 is the idea of or the meeting place between holding on and being held up to brace oneself and to be braced, to lean on and to be supported. So that's a fabulous insight into the complementary actions of Jacob holding on and God holding him up. Now the word picture includes that of a man blessing his grandchildren. And you'll recall it is with crossed arms. And so those hands, once so natural in their use, once so self-determined and self-reliant, as was his personality trait, by the end, the hands are unnaturally crossed, spiritual, overnatural, waiting on God, not self. And so our final task is to personalise the principles at play in this account for a 21st century setting and disciple. And it is character development that leaps out of the pages for Jacob. I mean, Jacob's personality is so easy to see. It's stark in the pages. Some of us may find him engaging and attractive. Others, brash and jarring. 
but the author goes to great lengths, engages us with beautiful and thoughtful writing, provides evocative imagery and careful relating of events, all to show us a character that proved to be malleable, a character that triumphed through the experience of life, even despite the experience of life. Perhaps the thing that I'm most impressed by is the radical nature of the character development. For many years, I falsely thought that Jacob's character development steadily and progressively uh, occurred, born perhaps of the school of hard knocks. But that is simply not true. The author cannot make it any clearer that the turning point at Jabok is radical. It's immediate. It's, it's a breathtaking transformation. And that's an inconvenient truth for me. That when it comes to wrestling with God, the example of Jacob is not one of snail, play, snail paste or gradual change in my life. There simply is no place for fighting with God. There is no endorsement of pulling or pushing God away. This is an example of a man who, despite his own personality traits of self-will, despite significant life challenges, swiftly found a way to live in harmony with the will of God, to still self-will and allow God's will to hold fast and to wait continually. Now the wrestles in your life will not diminish they may in fact become intolerably worse and none of us would wish for that. But any wrestle against God, any not allowing God to prevail, any not relinquishing to God, well, that has to stop radically like Jacob. And surely this is why Hosea uses the example, the example of Jacob to Israel. Hosea is not suggesting to Israel that they should take a steady slow, measured, gradual dissolving of sin and eventual uh, return to God. Of course not. Jacob is his urgent example for Israel to return, to hold fast, to wait on God, radically, immediately. Now only you know your character gap. Only you know if there's still something that you and God wrestle with, where you have yet to relinquish your will, where you refuse to acquiesce power, where you pull back what your hands are still holding on to. The good news, of course, is that character is malleable. It's not fixed. I am not a victim to my personality trait. Our characters can change. One strategy to assist character development is a role model. And Jacob's there for you. At the very least, he's an example of the possibility of character development. At best, Jacob can be your inspiration. He's relatable. His life tragedies are many. Some may even be relevant to you. He's raw. He's fallible. Most importantly, he is the proof that character gaps can be bridged. 
the triumph of radical change is open to a disciple. That a disciple today, wherever they may find themselves and whatever circumstances surround them, can grab on and hold fast to God and triumphantly just relinquish a life to God, choosing to wait continually on him. It is one of the most dramatic and stark turning points in all of scripture. We are so blessed, so happy to have his story. Perhaps it will be your story too.